So hey, um, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, uh, you know we have been in First and Second Samuel, uh, which has been awesome, and uh, it's been really, really good. I've been, uh, it's been, I've been enjoying it. I hope you have been enjoying it. Um, it's been awesome. You know, one thing is, uh, you know, whenever we talk about reading our Bibles, uh, I don't know if you can relate to this, uh, but I know a lot of people they say they say you know sometimes they kind of struggle to read their Bible, like. All right, we're going to have a moment of honesty, all right? Everybody ready? Here we go. It's going to be heavy. How many of you, raise your hand, if you have ever found it difficult to read your Bible? All right, there we go. There we go. See, see, you guys are being honest. I appreciate that, okay? Uh, I know I have. Um, I know that there are some, and let's just be honest, right? There are some portions of the Bible that are easier to read than others. Um, You know, every once in a while you get to a Leviticus, and you're like, ooh, here we go. Uh, Then there's sometimes you get to passages that are easier. And uh, one thing that I want to kind of share with you, just a little piece of advice. Uh, You know, whenever you're reading... Uh, Old Testament narrative, okay? So what that is, is basically portions of the Old Testament that are basically telling like a story, right? So it's kind of saying, hey, this happened, and then this happened, and and stuff like that. One thing I want to encourage you with is, man, first of all, there are some incredible things in there, right? So first and second Samuel is what we would call uh, Old Testament narrative, right? And there are some incredible storylines that are in that. But one thing I want to encourage you, here's, I want to give you some tips for when you read Old Testament narrative, okay? One is understand the big picture of what's going on, okay? Like, understand the big picture of what's going on. So especially when you're reading the Old Testament, there's names and places that sometimes can be hard to understand what they, or well, how do you pronounce that? There's a lot of dashes, and I'm like, I don't even know what's going on here. You know, it can, it can be hard. You can almost get lost in the details. But I want to encourage you that sometimes, just okay, don't worry too much about all the finer details. Understand the big picture of what's going on. And then in understanding the big picture of what's going on, ask yourself this question, right? Like, okay, what's going on here? And then what does, what's going on? What does this teach me about God? Okay? That's a good way to approach it. And then here's another, another tip for you. Read slowly. Read slowly. Right, because what we're doing in First and Second, what we're doing in First and Second Samuel is we're seeing, man, there's some incredible storylines that's taking place here, and there's some incredible things that are going on. If we're not careful, we can miss it because we're trying to rush through it, or 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 we're getting lost in the details and all that stuff, and it can be really complicated. So what we're going to do right now is tonight, it's interesting, we're in First and Second Samuel, which is why uh, tonight uh, I want you to turn to Psalm 57. Psalm 57 is where we're going to be tonight. Some of you are like, that's not 1st or 2nd Samuel. You are correct. However, Psalm 57 was written during 1st Samuel 22. Does that make sense? So what we're going to get, so, so if you remember, what chapter did we leave off last, so we didn't meet last week, but the week before, what chapter did we leave off in? Do you remember? Not quite. 17, 17, right? We were in, we were in 1st Samuel chapter 17. Now we're, in, uh, we're kind of like talking about uh, something that happened in chapter 22. So, man, you're, I know you're dying inside. You're like, Mike, what happens during those few chapters? I am so glad you asked, right? So last time we were together, we saw this incredible victory that David experienced, right? David defeats Goliath. There's this a major high point in David's life. Right? And up to this point in 1 Samuel, things have really been focused around Saul, right? Focused around King Saul, all the things that are going on there, also Samuel. And now when we, when, whenever David is anointed as king, we start to see things shift. And then really in the story of David and Goliath, the focus of the book shifts mainly to David, right? We see this major shift towards David. And now this, is a, like, this drastic shift is taking place. And things in the book are about to get serious, right? Like the statement, like, it's about to get real. Like, in 1 Samuel, it's the things are about to get real now for David. Right, we left off in chapter 17, and David is loved by Saul. Understandably so, right? I mean, David has just had this incredible victory on behalf of Saul. Right? Saul gets to enjoy the benefits of David's labor, of David's work. Also, we see that David, whenever Saul was troubled by uh, a spirit that, was, that would come against him and trouble him, that David would come in and play music on a lyre for him, and it was soothing, and, and Saul loved David. David would serve in Saul's court. However, after David defeated Goliath, things be- begin to kind of change a little bit. In chapter 18, we see there's a bond between David and Jonathan. Does anyone remember? Who is Jonathan? Does anyone remember that? Who's Jonathan? 
Saul's son, right? So, so Saul's son, Jonathan, there's this, there's this special friendship between Jonathan and David. And in chapter 18, we see this idea that Jonathan, that, that uh, uh, chapter 18 tells us that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. They were best friends, deeply caring for each other. So much so that later on in the book, John, Jonathan and David, they would make a covenant together that their line, uh, that their family lines would always be at peace with one another. That they would never attack one another. They would have this, this, this lifelong bond between the two of them. Continuing on in 1 uh, Samuel 18, we're actually going to see that not only does Jonathan love David, but now all of the people of Israel love David. There's this massive victory. David is, David is big man on campus. There's, everyone loves David. The women, when after they came back from the, uh, from the battle with the Philistines, the women came out singing songs. And in 1 Samuel 18, 7, it says this, The women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Yeah, yeah, ooh, right? Saul has struck down his thousands, but David has struck down his ten thousands. See, David is, a, is at a major high point. He's loved by everybody. He's successful in battle, and the people love him for it. And it is, it is at this point that Saul went from loving David to now hating David. Right? Saul loved David, but now David is loved by everyone, including his own son. The people, they say, man, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And Saul, surely all Saul is thinking about is what Samuel told him several chapters earlier, right? How the kingdom has been torn away from you, and it will be given to someone who is better than you. Do you remember this? And Saul is watching this take place, and, and the Bible tells us that Saul now begins to hate David. He's angry with David, and he is jealous over David. He's jealous for David. And most surely Saul is just remembering what Samuel told him. That this day the kingdom has been torn from you and has been given to a neighbor who is better than you. Right, that idea of better than you just nagging away in his mind. And dwelling on this, he sees the ascendancy of David. He sees everything. And no doubt in his mind, he's beginning to put things together and realize David is the guy better than me. David is the guy that's going to take my spot. David is the one that's going to be the next king, and his hatred for David begins to grow. Chapter 18 will go on to say that Saul was fearful of David, and this fear drove him to seek to try and have David killed. On two separate occasions, while David was playing music to try and soothe Saul, Saul would take his spear and throw it at David to try and kill him. When that didn't work, he put David, he sent David on these impossible military runs to try and uh, hopefully, okay, well, if I'm not going to kill him, let's see if the Philistines will kill him. And he would send him on these impossible military runs. And, and there's some stories in there that are pretty crazy, but for the sake of time, we're just going to try and hit the highlights. And then eventually, uh, what happens is the more Saul tries, the more successful David becomes. And while David is convinced that Saul is trying to kill him, Saul, uh, uh, Jonathan is like, no way, man. There's no way. If my dad was trying to kill you, don't you think I would tell you? He's like, I would tell you. There, there's, there's no way. There's no way. Well, they come up with a plan to be able to see, okay, is this really trying to happen? And what happens is they have this feast, this festival, and then basically David says, hey, I'm not going to come. And when your dad asks where I'm at, tell him that I had to go do this thing, and you let me go do it, and then we'll see what happens. And what happens is when Jonathan tells Saul that David's not coming, Saul loses it. 1 Samuel 20, verse 30, says, Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You're, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Saul is telling Jonathan, saying, Look, as long as David is alive, you will never be king. It's like, don't you get that? And, and basically, he gets on, goes on, and he basically says this. He goes, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. Well, now the cat's out of the bag, right? Jonathan understands what's going on. He goes and he tells David, and now David is on the run. David and Jonathan, they have a, a, a bitter farewell, and David now leaves. Saul sends his men. He, put, he puts this command out for his men to go and find David and to kill him. As you enter chapter 21, David is fearful for his life. And in his fear, his faith in God begins to wane. 
Right? We see David as this heroic figure in, in Scripture, and he is. But it's important to understand that a lot of the heroic figures in Scripture, other than Jesus, while they are heroic, they are not perfect. And while David is fearful for his life, his, his faith in God begins to se- severely fade. No longer trusting in God, he eventually starts to take matters into his own hands and trying to provide a meal for himself. He lies to a priest to get some extra food. A lie that in 20, chapter 22 he will come to greatly regret as it will lead to that priest and 85 others being put to death. Right? There's this, there's, he's, he's, so he lies to this priest. Eventually, he tries to put his faith in a, in a sword, and he takes the sword. And then, and then after that, when that doesn't work, he runs away. to. Uh, he tries to hide in a city called Gath, if you remember Gath. Gath is the city where, uh, where Goliath is from. He tries to hide amongst the Philistines. And when that doesn't work, it's, it's just he's on the run. All of his running and fear eventually lead him to a cave called Agilum. He's in this cave, and this is where he is. He's no, man, and think about this. Think about where David has come from. In the matter of just a few chapters, he was the man. And now he's hiding in a cave in fear of his life. Talk about drastic changes in just a short amount of time. I want you to think about this extreme circumstance that David is in. He went from the anointed next king of Israel defeating Goliath, being loved by everyone in Israel, to now running for his life. And literally, there's nowhere for him to go. There's no bed for him to sleep in. There's no house for him to stay in. And it is in this moment, while he is in this cave, that he writes Psalm 57. That he writes Psalm 57, where he praises and worships God while in a cave, running for his life. And what you see is that even while on the run for his life, David was able to do what many of us believe to be impossible. David was able to worship God when all things seemed hopeless. See, it's a lot easy, it's very easy for us to worship God when all things seem to be going well. But in this passage, what we see in Psalm 57 is not David worshiping God when everything is great. It's David worshiping God when everything is at its worst. Worshiping God literally in a cave. And let me just tell you this, guys, that if you cannot worship God in the caves of life, then you will never know how to behave in the caves of life. When you get to those difficult moments in life, if you don't know how to worship God in those moments, then you will not know how to navigate those moments. And here's the issue, right? Many of us have the desire, I believe, many of us have the desire to worship God when times are, when times are tough. I believe many of us, we want to. It's like, man, Pastor Mike, that sounds awesome. Like, I would love to be able to do that. That, that sounds like the right thing for me to do. And maybe you even try really hard to do so. But the problem is, is that you don't know how. How do I do this? See, we say that as long as worship is genuine, that it's perfectly fine, right? right? I don't know if you heard it, like, hey, as long as worship is genuine, then it's totally good. And, and God is good with genuine worship. But here's the problem, is that I know many people who worship false gods very genuinely. I've been to Jerusalem, and I've watched men, women, boys, and girls sit at the western wall and genuflect and pray and pray for hours and hours. And here's the thing is that their prayers fall amiss. Why? Because they pray apart from faith in Jesus. And what does Jesus say? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So all of their worship, all of their praise is meaningless. It does nothing. No matter how genuine they are. We talk about your worship, and I'm not talking about singing. I'm talking about your life. The worship of your life from the moment you wake up to the moment that you put your head on your pillow at night. The worship of your life. Is it acceptable to God? That's the question. What is worship that God accepts? And how can you worship, how can you offer acceptable worship in difficult moments? A.W. Tozer in The Purpose of Man put it this way. He says, it is important to understand that nobody can devise their own pattern of worship or worship God however they please. 
The pleasure here belongs to God alone. The one who created us to worship him has also decreed how we shall worship him. We cannot worship God as, how, as we will. Our worship must always conform to God's pleasure. So this leads us to this question. What is worship that God sees as acceptable? And have you ever worshiped God in a way that he truly accepts? See, in church today, we have greatly misconstrued what authentic, genuine worship is. Both young and old. And I believe that this psalm that David pens here in Psalm 57 gives us three very key factors when it comes to worshiping God. So if you would, Psalm 57, some of you are like, finally, all right? Psalm 57, if you would, I would encourage you to stand with me as we read. Psalm 57, starting in verse 1, you see it says, To the choir master, according, uh, uh, sorry, according to do not destroy a mictham of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Verse 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be, all, be over all the earth. If you would pray, Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Father, I pray that as we study your word tonight, you would, you would teach us what is true worship. And Father, that when we come to these difficult seasons of life, that we would be able to understand that what true worship is, is not dependent on our circumstances. It's dependent on what you say it is. God, we thank you for this time, and we pray that, you would, that your, word, your will will be accomplished through your word tonight. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, go ahead and grab a seat. So there's three things we're going to talk about about genuine worship. The first thing we're going to see is this, is true genuine worship submission. True genuine worship that we see here, the first part, that must be in all worship, not just singing, but your life must be marked by submission. And not just submission to anybody, but submission to God. And there's two types of submission, or there's, two, there's submission that leads to two different things. The first thing is submission that leads to humility. Verse 1, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. Now remember, David is the anointed one of God, right? He has been anointed to be the next king of Israel. David is the one who killed Goliath. David is the one who saw victory after victory. And David, in his prayer, the first thing he says is, be merciful to me, O God. Why does, it, why does he come to God and the first thing he says is have mercy on me? It's because of this. Because David understands that him being anointed as king, him having victory over Goliath and all of these incredible things in David's life was not a result of his merit. It wasn't because he was good enough. It was because of God's sovereign will in his life. You, you understand? I see, I, I want, hey guys, I want to kind of make sure, not everybody, but a lot of people are kind of like talking and joking and laughing. That's great, but if you don't want to pay attention, at least respect the people next to you who do. Or at least respect me to not distract me while I'm trying to preach. All right? Thank you. See, remember at this point in David's life, David's faith has waned pretty severely. If you go back to previous chapters, he's lied to priests. He's, he's, uh, he's taken swords, rather, than the sword. And in particular, the sword that he takes was the sword of Goliath that was being kept. He's being kept aside, and he takes that sword. He puts his trust in this sword, which is interesting, because when he faced Goliath earlier, when Goliath came at him with that very sword, what did David say? He goes, you trust, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come with you with the name of the Lord of hosts. Now, all of a sudden, the sword doesn't look so bad to David. He tries to hide amongst the Philistines. He, he lies. He cheats. 
See, while he's known as a man after God's own heart, it's not because he's perfect. I want you guys to understand that. that I think a lot of times when we think of God using people, we think, oh, well, like, I have to be perfect. And here's the thing, like, of course, like, you know, put yourself in a position to be used by God. You know what I'm trying to say? But here's the thing I want you to understand. Don't think that past mistakes will dictate what God can do with your future. Don't think that right now is going to determine what God can do with your tomorrow. And don't think that what happened yesterday is going to determine what God can do with you today. See, whenever David does sin, which is pretty frequently and also in some pretty incredible ways, as we're going to see over the next several weeks, David is always repentant of his sin, and he always confesses his sin. See, no matter, it doesn't matter if he was ordained or anointed to be the next king, he understood that he was still in need of God's grace. And we must understand that we should never lose sight. Uh, we should never lose sight of who we are in relation to God. See, David is big man on campus compared to everybody else, but he's nothing compared to God. You may be the, you may be like the best person in this room. You could even be on this platform preaching, but never lose sight of who you are in relation to Jesus. All of us need God's mercy every day. See, if it wasn't for God's grace in our lives, he is the greatest threat that we can possibly imagine. We should never move beyond a heart that cries for mercy as David does here. You see, humility is the catalyst for worship. Humility is what leads to worship. You cannot have a prideful worshiper. It doesn't make sense. There's no such thing as a prideful worshiper. So where does this humility bring him? Where does this humility that David has, where does it bring him? It brings him running to the wings of the Almighty. Continuing on in verse 1. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. You see this, that where does he run? He runs to God. When troubles come and all these different things, what is it? He finds his refuge in God. And the beauty of the gospel is this, guys, is that the God who is our greatest threat in Jesus becomes our greatest refuge. You see, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, God is not comforting to you. He is a judge to you. But if you have a saving relationship with God through the blood of Jesus, then he is comfort for you. He is a refuge for you. He is a strong tower for you. Run to him. He is the one that we run to when times get tough. And I think if we're honest... If we're honest, it's our pride that keeps us from seeking refuge in Jesus. And here's what I mean, is that we think, look, I'll run to Jesus when I don't have anything else to do, but as long as I can control it, I'm good. I'll take care of it myself. Right? We believe that we can provide for ourselves, that we can take care of ourselves. You see, you can't seek refuge in Jesus while still trying to manage everything on your own. See, to seek refuge in Jesus is to have humility, and that humility comes from understanding that you must that we submit to him. We submit to him. So we see submission that leads to humility. Second part of submission, we see submission that leads to confidence. Remember, David is hiding in a cave from his greatest enemy, Saul, and his armies. David has sought refuge in a field. He has sought refuge in a, with a sword. He has sought refuge in the land of the Philistines. And now he seeks refuge, refuge in a cave. And while David has sought refuge in all of these places, it ultimately leads him to the place of submission and understanding that only God can be the refuge that David needed. Think about this, is that he is hiding in a cave. And while in this cave, in his prayer, he says, God, you are my refuge. Now, this may look like a refuge. This, all these things that you find your security in right now, your parents, your finances, your friends, your relationships, who's next to you, who, whatever, all of those things may give you comfort at the moment, but there's only one refuge that actually stands because all of those things are temporary. All of those things are temporary. Some of you have experienced how temporary relationships in this world can be. Those 
those of you who come from a divorced home know just how temporary some things can be. Those of you who have moved here from other places know how temporary things can be. Those of you, if you've ever had a parent lose a job, know just how temporary things can be. But seeking refuge in Jesus is not temporary. It lasts forever. See, David didn't find his safety in the cave. He found his safety in the refuge of of God Almighty. Verse 2, it says, I cry out to God most high. To God who fulfills his purpose for me. You see, he declares God most high. That term, God most high. See, this declaration goes beyond just a simple title, right? Like, God, really cool. No, most high. What What does he mean? It's David is acknowledging why he trusts God. Even in the midst of this difficult situation, why does he trust God? He trusts God because he sees that God is above all things. Everything that happens, he is above it all. And I want you guys to understand something. Everything that happens in your life, God is above it all. The things that overwhelm you do not overwhelm Jesus. This doesn't mean that he's not touched by it. This doesn't mean that when you hurt, he doesn't hurt. It means that he is over it all. Because God is above all things in this world. No cave can offer the protection that God can. And when you worship God, it must be out of submission to his authority and his power over all things. We're confident when we worship. Because the one we worship is in control of all things. See, many of us struggle to worship God. We struggle to worship God and we struggle to run to him during our times of struggle and hardship. Because we struggle with the belief that he truly is most high. What David says here, God most high. We, we struggle to, we may say it, but do you really believe it? Do you really, really believe that even the difficult things in your life, God is in control? And everything that God allows to happen is for your good. Even the things that in the moment don't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Psalm 50, 21, God says, you thought that I was like yourself. What does it mean? I see a lot of us, if we're honest, we, our view of God is that we just view God as he's just a more powerful version of us. He's just a more powerful version of, of me. So, I mean, if I have to trust somebody, at least, like, God may be a more powerful version of me, but at least I know me, so I'll just stick with me. As long as that's your view of God, of course that's what you're going to do. See, we find it easier to trust ourselves because we at least know ourselves. You see, the things that you cannot control, God can control. And what you'll find as you grow older in life is that all these things that you think you can control, you really don't. You really don't. Some of you have an idea of where you want to go to college. And you can get all these grades, and you can do all these different things. But understand this. Ultimately, you have to be accepted. You could do everything right, but ultimately, the school decides if you come or not. You can do everything right. And ultimately, we convince ourselves we have this control that we don't really have. See, you you will find that when you submit to the reality that God is in control and you accept that and you allow that to give you confidence, man, it, 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 it does something to you. I understand that the one who loves me more than I could possibly imagine is in control of the things that happen to me. Man, that gives me confidence. The things that hurt me, the things that I'm concerned about, the things that I think about, the things that I pray about, I could go to God knowing that he can do something about it. The thing, one thing that drives me crazy, you guys ready for honest Pastor Mike for a second? Right? I'm a pastor here at the church. And one thing that honestly drives me out of my mind is people think that because I'm a pastor, I can control anything that happens here. Okay? Newsflash. 
Sometimes I can't control that. Here's an example. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I have a key to every door in this building. Some of you hey, can you unlock this? I don't have a key for that. Right? And people get frustrated because they expect me to be able to do something that I can't do. But imagine this. Imagine being able to, like, anything, whatever it is that's stressing you out in your mind right now. Do you understand that God can literally do whatever he wants with that? That literally God can change it like this. Here's the thing. We don't find our joy and our happiness in what his response is. We find our joy and our, and our confidence in the fact that whatever he choose to do, chooses to do is the right thing. So I can go to him and I can pray and I can ask him knowing that I'm going to the only one who can actually do something about it. Let me give you an example. When Kayla was, when Kayla was pregnant with Carly, that was a super exciting time in our life as you can imagine right like man i'm like i'm about to have a i'm about to have a a baby and like 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 i don't even like what's this baby gonna look like you know are they gonna like are they gonna what are they gonna act like what you know what's it gonna be I, what's it gonna be like i don't know and while i was excited there was also a part of me that was terrified and it's interesting because I wasn't terrified about what you may think, you know, like terrified about, okay, raising a kid and all these different things. The thing that terrified me the most, there was a, there was a season of this, was I know that like birth and delivery and stuff can be very hard on the mother. And I'm just going to be totally honest with you, my biggest fear was that something would happen to my wife. And I carried this, this weight for a long time. And, and I was scared. I didn't want to bring it up to Kayla because I didn't want to make Kayla freak out about it. You know what I mean? So I was just like, I just, you know, and eventually I just told her and I cried about it and, and all these different things. But, but, but here's what, what, eventually what I had to get to the point of understanding is that not just for Kayla, but for every person in this room, the difference between life and death is God's goodness in giving it to you. You understand that? My dad, a few years ago, had open heart surgery, and he had to have a pacemaker. And basically, a pacemaker is basically, it's, it's an electronic device that, that basically makes sure that your heart beats. And it was kind of nerve-wracking at first. You're like, man, I have this thing, and like, this thing is what tells my heart to beat or whatever. And what's interesting is this, is that none of us control whether our heart beats or not. He just happens to be more aware of it now. You see what I'm saying? See, the, the only thing that separates you right now from eternity is God's kindness to give you your next breath. What I understand with Kayla was that God loves Kayla more than, he, more than I do, and God loves me, and he will always do for me what is best for me. When I began to really wrap my mind around that and submit to that and accept that, then it started to change the way I viewed it. Now, it's one thing to believe, to, to say this, another thing to believe it. It's another thing to submit to it and accept it. I want you to look at what David goes on to say in verse 3. He says, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David is saying, God is going to stick up for me. God is going to deliver me. I may be hiding in a cave now, but I know that there's going to come a time where I'm not going to be hiding in a cave. And here's what I want you to understand. David is not naming it and claiming it and blabbing it and grabbing it. Why does David have this confidence? Because David knows that several years ago, he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. So David knows this. I may be in a cave now, but God told me I'm going to be on a throne eventually, so I know it can't end here. And this doesn't mean that everyone in this room is going to be on a throne, but what it does mean is this, is that if God says it, put your confidence in what God has said. Put your confidence in what God has said. David knew that if God anointed him to be king over Israel, it didn't matter how many people were seeking to kill him because God was going to make his word come true. 
See, the reason that I can worship God with confidence is because of the promises of Scripture. Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. One of the greatest promises in all the Bible, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another promise of Scripture, Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These are the promises of Scripture that we put our confidence in. This is how we worship with confidence is because we know what the Word of God says. But here's the thing. You can't have that confidence if you don't know your Bible. And this is the shortcoming of many people. Not just young people. Young people, middle-aged people, older people. You see, David's confidence is in what God had declared and what he knew to be true about God. And our confidence must be in what God has declared through his word and what we know to be true about him based on his word. See, some of you struggle to be confident in God because you don't know a whole lot about him. Let's just be real. Some of you don't know how to be, you don't, you're not confident in God because you don't know him. You don't know his word. You have people who will, who will pray on bended knee and say, God, speak to me, speak to me, while their Bible is closed. Now, what does this have to do with worship? Everything. Because worship at its core, when we talk about especially like worship in church, right? It's singing songs to God based on, uh, to singing songs to God and about God based on what we know to be true about God. And we know, what we know about God, we know because of his word. See, understand this. Your worship will never exceed your knowledge of God. I'll say that again. Your worship of God will never exceed your knowledge of God. So if you don't know God very well, you will not worship him very well. See, notice that David doesn't deny reality also, verse 4. His confidence doesn't mean that he denies reality, because verse 4, he talks about the seriousness of his situation. He talks about the people coming against him. He sees all of these different things. See, being a confident in God doesn't mean you deny reality. It means that you understand that God is more powerful, the God that you can't see is more powerful than anything that you can see. And this is, here's the thing. There's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. We're not arrogant. We don't assume that God is always on my side. We don't take the stance and we say that God is always going to show up for me the way that I want. However, we're confident that he will always act the right way. And because we have the promises of the Bible, the love of our Father and his, faithful, and his faithfulness, then we have every right to be confident. So we have submission that leads to humility, submission that leads to confidence. The, the second thing is exaltation. Every aspect of worship, not only singing worship, but your life worship, you should have submission and exaltation. Verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be, all, be over all the earth. See, throughout the rest of the psalm, we see David exalting and praising and honoring God. He sings praises to him. All worship, understand this, all worship. All worship should be exalting to God and no one else. My boy A.W. Tozer's got another one. In, his, in the same book, Purpose of Man, it says, Idolatry is simply worship directed in any direction but God's, which is the epitome of blasphemy. See, the true worshiper desires for God to receive the glory that he rightfully deserves. And we see David express this in two different ways. There's two different ways that we exalt. The first way we see is exalting within oneself. Exalting God within oneself. Verse 6 and 8. My heart, verses 6 through 8. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. See, what do we see? Oh, is it my heart. He's talking about his heart. See, if God is not exalted and lifted up within your heart, then he will never be exalted and lifted up with your mouth. 
If God is not exalted within your heart, he will never be exalted in your life. Matthew 15, 8 and 9, what does Jesus say? He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You see, it's easy for me to get on this stage and say God is good. It's another thing for me to get off this stage and believe in my heart that God is good. You with me? And I'll tell you this, if you cannot say this within yourself, if you cannot praise God within yourself, then it doesn't matter what you say with your lips. It doesn't matter what you say when you're in this room. It doesn't matter if you raise your hands and everything. If you don't believe it, it doesn't make a difference. See, David's heart is steadfast. That David was, what this means is David was resolute in his decision to worship. No matter the circumstances, no matter if he felt like it or not, no matter whether he was on a throne or in a cave. Now, here's the thing. We do tag time every week before worship. Why? Because let's just be honest, sometimes you come in here and you don't feel like worshiping. I get it. I'm a person, Right? But here's the thing. Sometimes you worship until you feel like it. Sometimes you have to worship just knowing that it's the right thing to do, and you worship until you feel like it. See, far too often we will allow our worship to be dependent on how we feel in the moment. And the more you begin to understand God, the more your, your natural response is to, be, is to worship him no matter the circumstance. And it's not dependent on your feelings. It's not dependent on your circumstances. It's dependent on who he is. And he never changes. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make when we think of worship is that we limit it to what happens, like, outside, right? We think of the things that people can see. But I'll tell you that worship begins in your heart before it ever moves out to your hands. And perhaps the reason you struggle to worship God in your life, perhaps the reason you struggle to worship God when you come into this room is because you don't worship him in your heart. I've heard it said that the reason people struggle to worship on Sundays is because they don't worship Monday through Saturday. And that on Sunday, the church gathers to do corporately what we should do individually. So we see exalting within oneself, but then we see this um, uh, exalting among the world. Verses 9 through 11, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. See, when Christ is exalted within yourself, the natural overflow is that he will be exalted in the world around you. See, many of us in this room, we come into this building every week. Some of us, we come in here multiple times a week. And we sing loud the praises of God. And then we'll leave this place and never once proclaim his goodness to the world around us. We'll come in here and we'll sing out loud. And then we'll leave this place and never once will we praise him. Either by sharing of his goodness or, or, or sharing the gospel, whatever it may be. How is this possible? How is it possible for you to worship God passionately in here, but never even mention his name out there? How is that possible? The possible answer is that your worship in here is not real. It's a possible answer. See, we wonder why God is not glorified within our churches. It's because oftentimes he's not glorified within our church members. And if he's not glorified in our church members and he's not glorified in our churches, then why would we assume that he would be glorified in our community and in our schools and in our workplaces and in our state and in our nation and in our world? You want to see God transform the lives of people around you? Exalt him as Lord within yourself and allow that to overflow to those around you. Only then will you begin to see God truly be honored in the church and in your life. And I know that there's people in this room, that you have people in your life that you care about, that you want them to be saved. Whether it's a parent or a sibling or a friend, you want them to be saved. I want you to understand that one of the greatest things that you can do for them 
next to sharing the gospel with them is to love God in your, in your own heart. Then allow that to impact the way that you live. Because I want you to understand this, is that your life is the platform from which the gospel is preached. And the platform from which the gospel is preached can either greatly hurt your message or it can greatly enhance your message. If you want the gospel you preach to make a difference, live your life in such a way that it reinforces what you preach, not contradicts what you preach. First thing, submission. Second thing is exaltation. The last thing, it's the shortest part, so not, not your hearts be troubled, is obedience. See, David is hiding. His enemies are seeking him out to kill him. He is number one on Saul's most wanted list, and he is seeking refuge in a cave when he pens this psalm of worship. Isn't it amazing? You can read the story of what David's going through, and then you can actually hear his heart while he experiences it. See, what led David to this cave in the first place? What was it? It was his obedience to God's anointing on his life. That's what led David to the cave. It was his obedience to God. See, David's obedience is what led him to be in the line of fire of all of his enemies. David is running for his life, and all he had to do was reject the anointing that God had placed on him. Say, I don't want to be king. I know, God, you said this, but I don't want it. I don't want it at all. I'm done with it. And you know what would have happened? All of his enemies would have left him alone. See, a lot of us think that if we obey God, it'll lead us straight to the throne. But what you'll find most often is that obedience to God will put you in a cave before it puts you on a throne. He was in this position not because he was disobedient, but because he was obedient. Why? Because David was committed to the plans of God before anything else. Just look all throughout Scripture, right? Joseph was in prison before he was being before being put in second in command over all of Egypt. Elijah hid in a cave for his life before he was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den before he was quote prospering during the reign of King Darius. And Jesus obeyed to the point of crucifixion before being raised for the glory of the Father. See, the first worship that God desires, the primary worship that God desires is the worship of your obedience. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. 1 Samuel 15, remember what Samuel said to Saul when Saul offered the sacrifice. What does Samuel say? He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. See, in this case, David first worshiped through his obedience, and this is where many of us lack in our worship today. We're really good at singing the songs. We're really good at doing this, this, and this, but we're really not good at obeying. And please, please hear me out, guys. You cannot worship God while living in unrepentant, ongoing disobedience. You can't. It's like, it's, I've given this example before. My, one of my favorite meals is a steak. Like a steak and potatoes. You know what I'm saying? Like, give me like, like a, like just <clears throat> steak, right? And like some mashed potatoes and some gravy. And I'm like, Lord Jesus, come again, right? Like, it's just, it's just good. I'm good for it. Now imagine there's a restaurant and they have the best steak in the world or whatever the meal is for you. And it tastes delicious. But here's the problem. They'd never wash their dishes, their dishes, they're, they're gross. Actually, here's how they wash the dishes, is that they have, they have like some goats in the back and they lick the dishes clean and then they put the food on them and they send them out. Here's the thing. Now all of a sudden that steak is not very appealing to you. Why? Because the vessel that it is presented on is filthy. Likewise, all of your righteousness, all of your singing, all of your worship to God is filthy in his eyes, not because what you present is bad, but because the vessel that presents it is dirty. And this is what the Bible teaches us, is that all of us, apart from Jesus, are dirty dishes. All of us. 
All of us are dirty dishes, and we cannot present acceptable worship to God, not because we don't, you know, our voice isn't right. Or not because, it's because we need to be cleaned first. Now, does this mean that I have to be perfect before God can accept my worship? There has to be perfect obedience before God can accept my worship? Yes, it does. And the problem is none of us are. I'm not. I'm not perfect. I wore this jersey because I lost a bet. Right? So, man, that's a problem, right? The only way that my worship can be accepted by God is through perfect obedience, but I can't offer perfect obedience. So what do I do? I'm so glad you asked. That's why Jesus came, and when Jesus came on this earth and died on the cross, we don't just put our faith in the fact that he died for our sins. Yes, absolutely we do, but when we do that, we, what we receive is his righteousness, Meaning this, is that when, when you place your faith in Jesus, you're placing your faith in his death, but also in his life, his sinless life on your behalf, so that when you go to worship God, the first thing you do is you present the obedience of Jesus. And you say, I come to you in the name and the basis of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. And the beauty of the gospel is this, is that Jesus' righteousness on your behalf covers over all of your sins. Everything you have ever done is covered under the blood and the righteousness of Jesus. And that is good news. We come to God on the basis of the obedience of someone else. Because Jesus is the one who submitted and humbly came to the earth that he created. Jesus is the one who exalted the name of the Father in every word and deed. And Jesus is the one who is obedient to the plans of his Father to the point that it led him to suffer on the cross for your sake and for mine. And when I come to God, I first come to him knowing that the only thing good that I can give him is actually himself. 